Good morning, everyone. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through the end of chapter 7. Um, the scripture reading seemed a little abrupt when there's only two more verses in the chapter. That's my fault. Um, I did mean to write through verse 15, but it's just a typo on my part. Brandon did very good to follow the, uh, the board. Um, but we'll be, we'll be going through all the way at the end of chapter 7, and this will be the last lesson in the series that we've been doing um, titled The Power of the Gospel. As we've seen uh, the gospel spreading in Jerusalem, really Acts chapter 1, um, if you actually want to turn here, something really helpful is verse 8. It actually gives an outline not only of um, the order of how the gospel spread geographically, but it's actually an outline of the book of Acts itself. So Jesus is talking to the apostles. This is right before um, he's taken up into heaven out of their sight as they're looking on. Uh, This is the last thing Jesus says to them. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, that's chapters 1 through 7, and in all Judea and Samaria, that's chapters 8 through 12, and in the, even to the remotest part of the earth, that's chapter 13 through the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28. So really through chapter 7, what we've seen and what we're going to see is how the gospel is spreading so powerfully in the city where Jesus was crucified. And after the events of this chapter, we're going to see um, just very briefly at the conclusion how Stephen's death ultimately leads to the spread of Christianity outside of the city and ends up fulfilling what Jesus said back in Acts chapter 1. By the way, could someone turn on the light right here? It would be just a little easier to see my Bible. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, so remember throughout... Um, yeah, that's a lot easier. Thank you, Scott. Uh, throughout Acts, what we've seen is although the church itself because of what Jesus has done, the church itself is confronting problems with wisdom, with patience. Everything that's happened to the church that could be a problem is only furthering the progress of the gospel. Outside of the people who believe, tensions are rising in the city, especially in the leadership. And that's going to reach a sort of climax here in this chapter. Remember in chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested for teaching about Jesus and the lame man who was healed was standing among them. The leadership could not deny it, but they warned them to stop preaching. At the end of chapter 5, they again arrested all the apostles and they flogged them, they beat them, and they warned them again, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And you know they just keep right on doing it. Well, now Stephen, we'll see, um, not an apostle, is going to be put on trial And again, we'll see this reaching a climax here with him. But I've titled this lesson, Fulfillment. Chapter 7 is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and I think for a reason. It's a very historical sermon. If you're interested ever in like an outline of Israel's history and maybe like a concise place where you can see all of that culminating together, chapter 7, Stephen's sermon, is a great place to go. But I think the idea of what he's preaching to the Jewish people is that Jesus came as the fulfillment of everything he had always been doing. And so to accuse the apostles and the disciples as preaching something contrary to their religion just doesn't make sense on many levels. We'll we'll see that. But I think we also see the way that Stephen preaches so boldly and his heart 
as he's being stoned at the end of chapter 7, also demonstrates God had not just fulfilled a religious plan, but he had fulfilled a plan to redeem people and make people like Jesus, ultimately. And that's what we see in Stephen. So let's begin with verses 8 through 15, and let's start with seeing how Stephen's trial begins. So remember, verse 7, again, is one of these summary verses where every time there's a problem with the church, the word of God just keeps spreading and flourishing. God's kingdom is conquering. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The first thing is, remember Stephen is one of the seven men appointed back in verse 5 to specifically take care of the needs that were happening among the distribution of food to the widows. And what that implies about Stephen, it says it in verse 5, he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 says Stephen was a man full of grace and power. And so Stephen was heavily involved both with people, but also I think it's clearly implied with teaching and evangelizing. And what happens here is actually directly parallel to Matthew 26, 59 through 61, where because the Jewish leaders could not cope with the spirit and the wisdom by which Jesus was speaking, what did they do? They stirred up the people, dragged Jesus and brought him with uh, a crowd of people armed as if to arrest a thief or a rebel rouser. They bring him to trial. They say that Jesus has claimed he's going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. And the high priest says, do you not respond to these things? You know, what do you say to this? And again, all of this, it's like Stephen is paralleling the life of Jesus. And I think that's important to notice, not just for Stephen's sake, but for the council. They're getting another chance to relive these events all over again. And they have to get confronted again with the same convictions, the same lessons. And so I want to put back into your mind again, this is something I've brought up already as the apostles have been arrested previously. This is the same council, the same ones, same people, same group that interacted with Jesus, condemned him, heard him out on trial. After he arose from the dead, these are the people who paid off the guards of the tomb and told them to lie about what they had seen. Same people that arrested Peter and John and heard them out. Same people that arrested the apostles. And by the way, remember, Gamaliel is a part of this group. And we're going to wonder at the end of this what happened to his advice to be passive by the end of all this, right? So this isn't a people just all of a sudden coming upon the teaching about Jesus and not sure what to do with this, but these are people who have a lot of experience already hearing the gospel and rejecting it, even rejecting Jesus face to face. And notice how this escalates in verses 9 through 12, right? 
So Stephen is performing miracles, and as always, that's never the issue, but it's always the issue of what's being taught. So you have these groups of people. I imagine the scene, you have Stephen kind of by himself here, and these groups of people are gathering to argue with him. And by the way, this is an interesting group, the synagogue of the freedmen. This would have been either proselytes or Jews who at one point had been slaves to the Romans, who had been freed. And so you imagine, like, you would imagine people who had been freed from slavery would be very encouraging people who you would hope would have really good hearts. But here they are stirring up this riotous crowd against Stephen. So in verse 10, because they can't cope with his wisdom or the spirit by which he was speaking, because I imagine he was simply speaking plain, calm words of truth, proving things from the scriptures about Jesus, even pointing to the events that had very shortly before this taken place with Jesus. So what do they do? In verse 11, they secretly induce people to begin claiming that Stephen was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and with God. That doesn't deal at all with anything that he was actually saying. And so in verse 12, stirred up the people. As a side note, you know what you see in the book of Acts? When people get stirred up, they stop listening. And that when the Jews want to stop crowds of people from listening to people later like the Apostle Paul, they stir up the crowds. They get people emotional. They get them angry. They get them frustrated. Once the crowds are stirred up, that's always the end. It's over. So they stir up the crowds. They bring him before the council. They put forward false witnesses, again, just like Jesus. And Stephen is going to directly address verse 13 and 14. I think this is really important. Stephen is not just going to give an arbitrary history lesson. He is going to recount Israel's history with a very specific purpose. And we're going to try to track that as we work through his sermon. But they ultimately accuse him of two things. They say that Stephen has spoken against the holy place, the temple, and against the law. Those accusations are going to form the basis of what he brings out about their history. So he's going to directly address those two things in his response. And what we've seen again and again in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, chapter 3, over and over again, the way that the gospel is taught, disciples convey God's kingdom, they preach it, they preach about God's kingdom, by communicating and connecting scripture together, but not just as information or facts. They always connect scripture together to convict the audience and to make it personal. That's exactly what's going to happen here. Again, this isn't just an arbitrary history lesson. Stephen is going to end his sermon and go for broke. He's going to be as direct about this as he can possibly be. And so let's get into the meat of the lesson by looking at Stephen's sermon specifically, um, which really is just a testimony of all that God has been doing and what that now implies about those who are listening to him. So the sermon, I'm going to break it up um, a little bit because I do think there's a, a nice and neat um, order to it. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, but he really focuses on these four key figures. So verses 2 through 8, Stephen's going to start with Abraham. Verses uh, 9 through 16, he's going to talk about Joseph. 17 through 43, where he spends most of his time, he's going to talk about Moses. And very, very briefly, in verse 44 through 50, 
he's going to bring up Moses, not Moses, David, 44 through 50. He's going to bring up David very briefly, more in relation to the temple and the issue that they have with the temple because David did not build the temple, but his son Solomon. So we'll, we'll see that. And then finally, in the last three verses, 51 to 53, he concludes his sermon with a very convicting, very pointed conclusion. But again, he's focusing on people and not on that place specifically. So let, let's, let's read it. We'll start with verses 1 through 8. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. So they at least give Stephen their attention. And they do give him a, uh, a great freedom to speak. And something I didn't mention Verse 15, how is his countenance? This would have been, I think, an extremely frustrating situation with the most frustrating people where things have been escalating, tensions are arising, people are misquoting him, they're falsely accusing him, and I'm sure Stephen is very well aware of that and how ridiculous all of this is, and yet his face is like the face of an angel. And that's something that they they could see, right? So I don't know what that would have looked like if there was a vibrancy or if it's just the calm demeanor, the boldness or the contentment of the situation. But Stephen is simply going to teach them the truth because ultimately what Stephen has, the truth is on his side, right? So he begins with Abraham. And I think how this relates to the accusation is God's presence in a place in a building or does God dwell with people wherever they are because again they're fixed on this idea of you're speaking against this holy place this temple that exists in Jerusalem but has God's presence ever been exclusively restricted to this one point in the world where did God appear originally in verse 2 to Abraham when he was way over in Mesopotamia and notice in verse 7 The whole point of redeeming Abraham and bringing him to the land is that people would serve him personally in that place. Not serve the temple building or the physical ordinances of the law alone apart from God. That God was with people wherever they were and it was always about being with people and about people serving God the person. And we'll see that developed more as all this goes on. But a foundation is being laid God dwells with people to redeem them, to serve him as a person. Let's look at verse 9 through 16 and see how he transitions to Joseph. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him. Again, God's with Joseph, not in the land of Canaan, but way over in Egypt, and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So now we have Joseph. Think about it. Think about what he says about Joseph here in verse 9. Why was Jesus rejected by the Jewish leaders? What did Pilate perceive about it? Pilate recognized the leadership had betrayed Jesus and sold him out for jealousy. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, but God was with him. And this person who had this critical place in their history, who was betrayed by his brothers, God rescued him to make him ruler and savior and to bring his brethren where he was in his rule and to grant them salvation. And so again, there's things that he's drawing out here that are both relating to Jesus, but connecting dots of what they agree with and what they're familiar with that testifies to the truth, not only of what they've done, but who Jesus is. All of this is within their history. And think about something that he brings out here that seems a little odd in verse 13. Did they recognize Joseph on their first visit? It was on the second visit that they finally realized who Joseph was to them. Did they recognize Jesus for who he truly was on his first visit? But now it's like Jesus has come back. He's still alive. He's appearing to his brethren who betrayed him. And it's time to recognize who he is now as ruler and deliverer. And we see these patterns repeated with Moses. Again, we see the same thing. He's going to bring out specific details about Moses that just like Joseph, this person that God was appointing to be both the ruler and the deliverer was rejected by his brothers, yet God was with him and he came back to rule and to deliver to the same people who had rejected him. Let's look at verse 17. We'll, we'll read a larger block of text here. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. By the way, that should remind you of Herod in Matthew chapter 2. And what a coincidence, verse 20, it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So, okay. First time Moses appears as a deliverer. The people don't understand. 
They don't accept him. And in verse 26, on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together and he tried to reconcile them in peace saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who is injuring his neighbor pushed him away. That's pushed Moses away saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Keep that in your mind. You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, again, not appearing in the land of Canaan, but in this foreign place, in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look, but the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Now notice this insertion in the narrative of Stephen's sermon. This is something Stephen is saying, not by direct quotation, but by trying to make a point. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who is speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who is with our fathers. He received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what had happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramtha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon." So this is certainly the section where there's the most to unpack. But again, notice the connection between 27 and 35. The same person they pushed away and said, who made you a ruler and a judge? In verse 35, again, Stephen very deliberately connecting the dots. This Moses that was disowned is the guy that God did appoint to be those things the ruler and the deliverer. Um, and among other things, look at verse 32. Again, is God the God of a place? The God of a building? Or is he the God of people? And so again, there are these seeds of thought that Stephen is carefully planting that their history is not a history of God dwelling in a little structure, but God has always been the God of people, not of a place, not of a building, but people, right? And then verse uh, 30, 
38. I think it's interesting that he says he received living oracles. He doesn't say, and through Moses came the law. A suggestion. Living things grow. They mature. They develop and change. These living oracles, God has fulfilled them in Jesus. Those same laws, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? What did he say he was doing with the law? Not one jot or tittle shall fall from the law until all is fulfilled. Jesus was bringing what was alive in those laws that related to the character of God and bringing them to their fullest developed maturity. And so the idea of what's being taught by the, by the apostles and disciples is blasphemous against the law is completely wrong. Because what they're saying is the developed fulfillment, clearly, of everything that the law was meant to represent and point the people to. It's, at the end of the sermon, it's the leaders themselves who are blaspheming their own history and their own law. So let's move on to verse um, 44 through 50. David and God's dwelling. And Stephen's already transitioned into the idea of where God dwells by you know, bringing up the works of their hands. That's, that's going to be really a connected idea here with David and, and the temple. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. Just as he spoke to Moses... Uh, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made these things? So I want you to notice something. Look back at verse 41. What happened with the calf they made in the wilderness? What does Stephen say about that? They were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Um, look at verse 43. The images which you made. Look at verse 48. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. And look at verse 50. When God is saying, was it not my hand which made all these things? What did the temple become to the Jewish leaders? What did Jerusalem become? The temple being this building. Do you remember what happened to the temple, by the way, when Jesus died on the cross? How the curtain inside split in two? And what that's meant to symbolize? You know, so fundamentally, what did God say about himself? That man cannot make with their hands something for God to dwell in. But what had happened with the temple is it had become exactly like these other idols. That they wanted the temple, they wanted Jerusalem, but they rejected Jesus to cling to these things that they had made and put their confidence in. And look at verse 43, the end of the verse. Rejecting God and worshiping the things of their own hands, what was the consequence? And what had been the consequence in the past? 
Should the idea that Jesus is going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple because of what they've done, should the idea that the temple building will be destroyed because of idolatrous rebellion be strange? God has proven in the past that that's exactly what he's done with his people in times past. Is it blasphemous to teach that Jerusalem and the temple and its system by Jesus' own words and warning, was going to come to an end because Jesus was rejected by the Jewish nation. It's a part of their history, right? So God favored David. David didn't even build the temple because ultimately God's work was a work of people and developing his religion with these people through time. And the building was then a symbol So I want to talk about that for just a moment um, and define this word symbol. So if you look up the word symbol, it means a thing that represents or stands for something else, especially a material object representing something abstract. The temple was a symbol of God's relationship with his people, a representation, right? God himself said, and Stephen quotes it, God said himself He cannot dwell in a house made by human hands. So what's the point of the temple? It is a symbol that represents something about God's relationship with the people. But what had they done with that symbol? They had treated that symbol as if that itself was their object of worship. So let's see how Stephen concludes the lesson, verse 51 through 53. You men are, who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced, notice this, the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Sermon's over. No encouraging invitation, no pillow blows to kind of like soften them into the conclusion. And you know what's interesting in the book of Acts? That's actually how nearly every sermon ends. Every sermon ends with an incredibly personal and convicting conclusion, and it's over. And it's up to the listener to then respond, do something with it, or just walk away from it. And so rejecting Jesus puts them ultimately on the wrong side of their own history. Can you imagine, by the way, I imagine everything Stephen has said, although he's been connecting the dots, I imagine that they're kind of listening and like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, Moses and Abraham, Joseph, yeah, okay, like, I'm I'm on board with you, I'm following along. And then all of a sudden, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised, and imagine they're like, whoa, whoa, where's this coming from, right? And so again, there's a very abrupt conclusion to get very personal about it and to really, I think, draw out what the point is. Matthew 23, I think there's an important lesson here in how they would have viewed the law and read the law. You know, the religious leaders here, weren't they people who knew the law, memorized the law, familiar with the things Stephen was bringing out? But in Matthew 23, 29 through 30, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living... In the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. If we had been living in the days of the prophets, and they're adorning their monuments, they're decorating their tombs, saying, 
We wouldn't have done such a thing. If only we had been living in their days, we would not have shed the blood of the prophets. And Jesus says this, so you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. How do we read the Bible? You know, we can easily read the Old Testament and think, oh man, Israel, these stubborn, ridiculous people, I can't believe it, I would never have done that. You know, you read about the people who rejected the prophets and wow, how could you be so stubborn? If we want to be different, then we need to see ourselves reflected in their rebellion. Because that wasn't just those people back then, but God was reflecting a universal image of who we are apart from him, why we need him, the, the source of our sin and rebellion against him. So ironically, the fact that they didn't see themselves in the position of those who rejected the prophets put themselves in the position of those who rejected the prophets. So in verse 51, he uses an interesting term, you men who are stiff-necked. Have you ever had someone like try to move your head and like you were like tensing your muscles because you didn't want to turn? Like my dog would do that. So I had a dog when I was younger who was very stubborn and like he wouldn't look at other animals. So sometimes I try to turn his head to look at them and he just had this weird thing where he wouldn't even make eye contact. So he'd like quickly turn his head or like turn it the other way. But the idea of like, you don't want to look at something, right? So you're going to resist it and you're going to tense yourself and you're going to be stiff-necked. And so it's that God is trying to get them to turn, to move and look in a different direction, but they're stiff-necked and they're not going to allow themselves to see the truth or to turn around and repent. And so they've always been resisting the Holy Spirit, proven in the fact that they've rejected the righteous one that the prophets had always been talking about. So rejecting Jesus put them on the wrong side of their own history. Well, let's look at how this ends in verse 54 through 60. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Cut to the heart is another way to put it. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. And being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. The witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So you have a, I think, deliberate parallel here. Verse 54. They were cut to the heart, cut to the quick. What they had just heard had convicted them. They have nothing to say. I don't know if you guys have ever been like so tense before, like frustrated, like you're grinding your teeth together. I tend to do a lot of things because of tension. Like I, you know, have like a black mark on my hand because I like go like this when I'm feeling tense. But like I grind my teeth, right? And so imagine they're so tense from hearing this. It's just silence and they're just grinding their teeth, looking at Stephen. But I want you to think. What happened to the council's decision in chapter 5 to be passive? 
Where was Gamaliel now? I'll, I'll suggest to you, Gamaliel is right there. This is the council. It's this ridiculousness, the silliness of, well, you know, if it's of God, let's just leave it alone. You know, we'll, we'll see it bear out over time. No, no. You know, this Gamaliel in that moment was only, as we talked about before, giving them some clever way of escaping their own conviction in that moment and dealing with the truth of what was going on. Where was Gamaliel now? Where was the advice to remain passive? Because a passive response to the gospel's message, what is that really? A passive response, in reality, is a hostile response. So they're cut to the heart, but that's not really what triggered Stephen's death. You notice in verse 55 and 56, it's not until God shows Stephen this vision, this very unique vision, Jesus is standing for the first martyr, the first person who is dying for Christ. You see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And what a gift that is. And what a message that is to every person who would suffer and die for the gospel from that day forward. You never, by the way, you never see in any other place Jesus standing. Jesus, in every other place that talks about him at God's right hand, he's always sitting. So whatever it means here exactly, there could be many possibilities, but whatever it may mean, Jesus is uniquely standing for Stephen and seeing what's happening. When Stephen proclaims it, it's over. They descend into madness. And I imagine this in slow motion. Stephen sees this with joy, maybe tears in his eyes. And I'm sure Stephen is very aware he's gone for broke. You know, I think as soon as he started speaking in this situation, he was thinking, I'm ready to die today for these people. And so they rush at him. He doesn't run doesn't turn into a wild bar fight. They begin stoning him. They lay their garments aside at the feet of someone named Saul. And I don't know if you've seen someone being stoned before, but it's a brutal way of dying. It's a slow and painful, visceral, bloody way of dying. So you imagine there are stones of various kinds being thrown at him, he has plenty of time to understand what's happening and feel the pain of what's going on. And in verse 60, he falls on his knees and clarifies something very critical. This has not been a sermon preached from tired resentment. You know, like, how could these people be so stubborn, you know, and just be sick of it and just despise these men who have been entrusted with the leadership of Jerusalem and look where they are. There's not even a thread of bitter resentment. But his last words reflect some of the last words of Jesus. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I want to think about what that, what that entails and what that means. Do not hold this sin against them. What is he praying for? that God not allow their hearts to be hardened like Pharaoh, that they wouldn't be pushed further away from God because of this, that their hearts would rather be healed through Stephen's death, 
that God could plant convictions somewhere inside of them that lead them to humility and truth. That God, instead of closing doors of salvation in their lives because of this, that God would use his death to open those doors. And so Stephen's death, the character of his death, shows the achievement of the cross. Yes, you have Israel's history. God fulfilled this ancient plan. All of these promises carried through time. But I think what truly shows the fulfillment of what God had done, how he had succeeded, it's Stephen's last words. God had finally done it. People had finally been fully reconciled. And people had truly become Jesus in the deepest and truest sense. And so Jesus was still alive, living through Stephen. And as the chapter ends, as Stephen dies, Jesus is living to the disciples who are scattering. And so the adversity of this event only triggers a continual spread of the gospel. I imagine it like somebody seeing an ant bed and they begin stomping on it. What happens? You've made the problem worse. <laughs> the ants begin spreading, crawling everywhere. Their fire ants begin biting you. Um, but the adversity of this event only continues to further the progress of the gospel and fulfills God's plan. And that leaves us as the hearers of these things at a crossroads. What are we going to do with this? The Pharisees made the mistake that when they heard history, it was like this distant, disassociating thing. You know, that's them in the past. I have no relationship to that. And humility will associate with the people that God has included in his plan. What is the cross to us? That's 2,000 years ago. I mean, we were, we're not the ones who physically crucified Jesus. We aren't the ones who falsely testified against him. Humility will always associate with the things that God has done. And humility will take it personally. Jesus died for you and Jesus died for me. And in the hidden wisdom of God, he will veil that fact to the proud, but he will reveal it to the humble. If there's anything we can do for you this morning for your faith and your relationship with God, now is an appropriate time as we stand and we sing the invitation song.